Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Terrence Malagon. Two guests this week, two well-known people in the sports media world. First up is Jamel Hill. She's a staff writer for The Atlantic. Obviously, you know her as a former ESPN anchor and personality. She is the host of a new podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered. That broke this week. Check that out. It's on Spotify. I will note that Cadence 13, podcast company that does mine, they are the producers of this podcast. So they're actually doing the the tech part of the podcast, but uh, Jamel Hill is Unbothered is for Spotify. So she's first up. And then that's followed by Rick Riley, the author of Commander in Cheat, How Golf Explains Trump. That is a New York Times bestseller. He, of course, is a former writer and online, online, he's a former writer and on-air personality for both Sports Illustrated and ESPN. Obviously, I worked with Rick for many, many years at Sports Illustrated. He's one of the most uh, iconic, famous writers there. And these are two really good conversations about a lot of stuff. Jamel into podcasting, leaving ESPN, getting death threats. Riley, why uh, he wrote this book, his uh, relationship with Trump and golf, his thoughts on Tiger Woods, and also being an internet whipping boy. So coming up, Rick Riley. And up first, this is a guest who has been on this podcast before, podcast I did at Sports Illustrated before, somebody I've written about, somebody I've known for a long time. It is Jamel Hill. She is a staff writer for The Atlantic a former ESPN anchor personal, slash personality. And she is now the host of a new podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered. That podcast is for Spotify. Cadence 13, who does this podcast, they actually do the actual producing of Jamel's podcast, but she is doing that for Spotify. And Jamel Hill joins me from, am I allowed to say where you are, Jamel? Atlanta, Georgia? Yeah, you can say where I am. It's fine. Huh. <laughs> I don't expect I don't anybody f- to pop up and uh, come see me. I guess, but yes, I, I don't want to give up. I don't want to give up anything else other than uh, other than that. But welcome to the sports uh, media podcast. And before we get to your podcast, um, I want to ask you about sort of what your transition has been like post ESPN. You left ESPN last September, and uh, you know this is sort of my observation from afar, but it feels pretty seamless. And that's not always the case with former ESPNers who, when they transition, uh, it's a big adjustment to go from ESPN to wherever else you've gone. But at least for you, it seems to, your post-ESPN life seems to be um, eh, going at least, you know, sort of fairly smoothly. You've, You've found some places to work, some avenues to approach, and, you know, at least from afar, you seem, you seem happy and content. Am I, is my instinct or evaluation correct, or are you, I don't know, curled up in a ball somewhere with an ESPN blanket? <laughs> uh, no, your observation is very correct. And as always is the case, people sort of have a tendency to correlate um, sort of the things I'm involved in now and kind of use that as some kind of ind- indictment of ESPN. I mean, my time at ESPN was my time. It was 12 years. It was a great job. Um met and 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 really established a lot of amazing relationships there. Uh, but I think part of the reason why my transition has been so seamless is I was prepared for that transition, and I wanted it. And um, a lot of times at ESPN, as you know, as somebody who's covered ESPN for years, t- people don't always leave their own, on their own terms. And I just feel like if you do leave on your own terms more often than not, um, you know, your post ESPN life is 
is probably exactly the life that you designed or, or that you wanted. And, and people just have sliding scales of, of what happiness after ESPN looks like. A lot of people, I think, make the mistake of believing that unless you do something that is exactly like what you did at ESPN, it's not successful. So for some people, that means unless I wound up at a network as big as ESPN or doing a job that was exactly like what I did at ESPN, then it wasn't successful. And that's not the case. Um, Anybody who's known me knows that being on television every day was never something that I had to do. And that's not to say that I won't go back to television. I think I will at some point. It's just a matter of, of figuring out what's the right project for me to be involved in. But it was never something that was ever going to define me. And so, um, I'm really happy with everything I'm I'm doing. Writing was always my first love. So obviously uh, the work at, that I've done at the Atlantic has been more than meaningful for me. And now launching this podcast at Spotify, I always enjoyed the podcasting, um, you know, format, uh, you know, that it was sort of something I did before I transitioned to, to full-time television when Mike and I had our own podcast at ESPN and which was very successful. And a lot of people came to know me through that. So, um, yeah, everything that I'm doing now, uh, for people who know me, this is no surprise at all with how this transition has gone. I'm going to get to the podcast in a second. Uh, a couple of things off that, though. Um, you know, one of the things you're doing far more of is you're writing more about uh, social issues or politics. Uh, obviously, sometimes, uh, or not sometimes, but you've certainly written about the nexus of sports and politics or the nexus of sports and social issues. Do you, uh, is there any part of you that misses the day-to-day of sports? Because the one thing that really has changed, if anything, is just that you're, you're probably not as marinated in sports every single day, every single hour as you were at ESPN, as you have to be at ESPN, because that, you know, that's, it's essentially you're working for a sports outlet and it's your job, at least when it comes to viewers to sort of be on top of everything. But now you're, you're in a different, Avenue. So is your sports consumption the same or is it dropped? Uh, sports consumption is, is not the same. Um, and I, I guess I've, I've sort of morphed into, uh, in some ways, the, the viewer that ESPN is trying to attract. <laughs> because that's not to say I don't, I don't watch sports at all. So I don't want people to take that from it. Meaning, but I am more of a live event viewer. Um, and the stuff in between, I don't watch as much. Partly, mostly because of time. Uh, you know, my days are pretty filled, and uh, a lot of times I don't have, you know, the ability to watch, um, you know, say Sports Center or other shows because I'm busy or I'm flying or, or those kind of things. And so the live events, because they more fit in my schedule, is usually what I wind up watching. Um, I, I read a lot more um, than I probably can. I read more more about sports than I consume sports. Uh, which I know obviously also sounds odd, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't really miss being immersed in the day-to-day just because there are so many details that you wind up having to either read about, watch, dealing with sports that literally are meaningless. And I, and I even um, had this thought to myself probably in, in the last, you know, a week or so about um, how much and how glad I am that I don't have to do any preparation regarding the NFL draft. Like I hated the draft, like I always did. And so it feels so good to not to be able to pay attention to the NFL draft at all 
I, I guess other than the, the, the end results, but the minutiae sports, I don't miss at all. Um, and, you know, knowing about certain transactions and day-to-day stuff, uh, because, you know, being in that role as an anchor and just being on TV every day and, and having to have an opinion about literally everything, uh, what you wind up consuming, uh, it's amazing that someone's brain doesn't short circuit in the process. So um, I'm glad that I'm able to take more of a big picture approach when it comes to how I write about and discuss uh, sports. Um, it was funny because the debut episode of, of my podcast, I actually wound up talking more about sports than I guessed that I would because you talked about two kind of really big sports stories that, um, you know, that have been out there and developed as of late. Obviously, Tiger Woods winning the Masters was huge. And, you know, the the method and the way in which Magic Johnson quit his job, which, uh, again, I, I didn't go into this podcast wanting it to be about sports, um, but we would just touch on sports depending on how big the issue was. And so, um, yeah, just from a big picture standpoint, it feels good to kind of take a step back and and look at it much differently and through a different scope than, I, than I've done probably, I guess, in the last 20 years of my career. Well, now Magic uh, wants to tweet more. Try to get him. Try to get him to tweet about the podcast. It'd be some nice publicity. Yeah, I, I, I would. I would like to. I would like if he actually became a good tweeter because I, I hope someone has told him that's not his strength. Um, you know, he's he's sort of. Uh, I don't know if he gets the fact that you know you can make jokes on Twitter and like you know you could be a little more flexible because I still have. Even though he says it's him, I still have a hard time believing that's actually Magic tweeting. <laughs> All right. The podcast is called Jamel Hill is Unbothered for people um, who want to know what this podcast is about. How would you describe or define what Jamel Hill is Unbothered will be? Uh, well, um, it's myself and uh, two co-hosts, uh, Cole Wiley, son of Ralph Wiley, who I know you're very familiar with, um, and Michael Arsenault, who's an author and a writer. And, um, you know, both are, it's, it, it's, it's a it's an interesting place for me to be in. Um, one, I've never had two co-hosts. Uh, two, it's our we had one of those sort of fast and intense uh, relationships that were built. Um, it was it was sort of very different than say the podcast I had with Mike, where we went into it with you know a ten years plus friendship, and both of these friendships are, are relatively new, so it's it's different in terms of the dynamic. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned, it's not a sports podcast. It's one where we'll talk about, um, a variety of issues, whatever's topical observations. You'll get funny stories, um, great interviews, uh, a lot of the things that people love about podcasts, but we'll cover, you know, politics, news, pop culture, you know, sports, um, things that are relevant and we hope to have nuanced and, and funny and, and critical conversations in a different way. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think when people, you know, see the title of the podcast, I think it really, uh, part of the reason I, you know, picked that title, um, and it was, by the way, not my idea to have my name in it, but, um, part of the reason I picked that title was just because, um, it kind of represents kind of the place I'm in mentally where, um, I think this is probably the most comfortable in my own skin I've ever you know, felt in my entire life and career. And, and when you're at that place, um, you know, you're sort of unbothered about a, a lot of things. Um, still passionate, but just unbothered. 
Yeah, uh, a lot of freedom there. Did is there a format to the podcast? Meaning, do you guys start off by talking about whatever's on your mind, and then you go to a guest? Is the guest first, and then um, you three come back? Have you? Uh, it, maybe it's a mix of all different things depending on the podcast. But what's the format of or the idealized format? Well, the general format um, as of now is uh, you know we start off um, you know sort of. Uh, digesting something that's happened in our own lives. Uh, we roll into talking about a, a bigger issue or a bigger topic. I mean, I guess if uh, to use the debut episode as an example, um, of course I started with Game of Thrones. I'm a recent addict, <laughs> converted addict. So of course we, uh, we uh, me and Michael um, Arsenal are big into Game of Thrones. So we had to sort of go over an autopsy of the season premiere and from that, we rolled right into Tiger Woods, and that was pretty much our, our first segment, and we went from uh, Tiger Woods to, to Nipsey Hussle and the impact of his death, and um, took a break, came back, talked about uh, Tax Day and Magic Johnson, and we have a, a unique segment of which we will close every podcast. Um, I, I don't remember. Am I allowed to curse on here or not? I don't remember. Of course. Please. We encourage it. <laughs> Okay, so we have a, a, a ending segment that we will finish every podcast with called Fuck It, I'm Bothered. And um, that is just our opportunity to get off sort of quick things that are bothering us. And much to my surprise, my very first Fuck It, I'm Bothered, I defended somebody whose opinions I find to be completely intolerable, and that's Candace Owens. And so, but I actually defended her, and I couldn't believe I did it, but I did. So, um, so, yeah, we want to sort of end every podcast that way. Now, the guest format will be a lot different uh, because the guest format will be just me and that particular guest. And um, I've already taped a few guests. And, um, you know, I think people will very much enjoy that conversation. And we also are encouraging our guests to do a fuck it unbothered. So that will also become a staple. And we'll see some social plays with that as well. Um as we continue to do, um, you know, even more guest segments. So, uh, so far it's just, you know, as you know, someone who's been in this medium for a while, it's like, you know, there's an intimacy that a podcast creates and that's why I was kind of drawn to the format overall. And, um, you know, we hope people will listen and get a chance to know us and get a chance to know our guests in a, in a more intimate way or in a different way than they've known them previously. Where, um, is the guest list stand, Jamel, in terms of uh, how many of these have you banked, or at least you can uh, you can talk about? And then, do you have um, you know you must somewhere have sort of some kind of like uh, guest wish list? So first off, uh, who can you announce? And then, even if you don't want to sort of na- say the specific names, like what kind of guests are you hoping for in terms of either what they do or what they stand for, or or who they are? Well, um, yeah, so far I have taped a, a couple guest um, segments. Um, one was Charlemagne. The other uh, was Tom Bell, who's in the movie that's out now, Little, with Issa Rae. Uh, and he's a brilliant comedian and very funny. Uh, has a great backstory. He used to be a first-grade teacher. You know, now he's uh, not only on the, the, uh, the network sitcom, uh, I believe it's on CBS, Fam, but you know, he's obviously his movie career is kind of taken off and everyone knows Charlemagne and, um, you know, all the, the, the work that he's done over the years now has two books, um, you know, a part of a, you know, maybe one of the most successful morning 
shows in the country and the Breakfast Club. Uh, so I have done those. Um, I'm on a clandestine mission here in Atlanta this week to tape some more guest interviews, uh, which I won't divulge until we've actually done the interviews. But uh, let's just say there these interviews that I'm doing this week, which is representative of kind of what I want to do, is a cross-section of people. And so the guest interviews I'm taping this week uh, represent music, politics, and sports. And um, I guess what I was just looking for was interesting. That's all I cared about. Um, it didn't have to be the biggest name. If they were a big name, that certainly helped. But I mostly wanted interesting people who I could sit down and have a conversation with and who I think other people want to hear their thoughts and, and opinions. And so, um, you know, they, these are not uh, – I, I think people – always feel like people you have on your podcast have to be people that you agree with. That was also not a criteria. You know, I wanted smart, funny, critical thinkers, and I don't really care uh, sort of where they come from or um, if their belief system matches mine. You you have to at least fit those markers for me. Uh, what I won't do is stupid. Um, and as much as people, I won't do stupid and I won't do pandering. And as much as um, there are some guests that I know could easily, from a name standpoint, generate a lot of interest. But because I don't believe in their authenticity, um, I will never have them on. And I will never give a platform to, again, stupid or pa or, or pandering. Um, in terms of the dream guest, my ultimate dream guest is Michelle Obama. And on I, I am turning this into a thing. Kind of reminds me of Arian Foster, who on his podcast, he makes a plea every show for Jim Carrey to be on his show. Every platform I'm on, I'm making a plea for Michelle Obama to be a guest. Me and also half the other world, half of the, the world, I should say. But um, but yeah, no, uh, much like uh, I, is my sort of threshold as a journalist, it's like you, you have to be compelling in some way in order for me to kind of want to have you on and contribute to whatever dialogue is going on in a way that I think um, encourages some critical thinking. So um, that's kind of pretty much my guest philosophy. Well, Michelle Obama is a weekly listener of the Sports Media Podcast, so I will reach out to her, Jamel. And I, I, I so appreciate it. Anything yeah, you could she, do to further this process is, is greatly appreciated. She helps me book. This is really nice of her, actually. <laughs> I know she's busy, but that's 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 that's, that's the, I appreciate. It. All right. Um, how do you have an idea of how long you want each episode? To be there's you know one of the um, if you're sort of a podcast geek like myself it's pretty interesting to see all the different uh, podcast guests you know some people go super long two and a half hours and people love that kind of stuff there's other uh, listeners who just want you know thirty minutes thirty five minutes there are people who do sort of emergency podcasts where they react to the news and they'll either go long or short um, I don't actually think there is a right answer it's all sort of about what the um, what the hosts are comfortable with. Do you have an idea as to how long these episodes will be? Well, uh, the, the debut, I think, was 50 minutes. And I think um, that's kind of the target, if you will. But it's, as you noted, it's very flexible because I agree with you. I mean, there are, as a podcast listener, um, there are times where I've listened to podcasts that were 45 minutes and I thought they were too long. Um, and there were times where I've listened to podcasts that were an hour and a half, and I thought it was too short. Um, I think, you know, much like you would if you were a journalist writing a story, you write it for what it's worth. And to me, it's the same with a podcast. It's like you do it for what it's worth. And 
if I get a really compelling guest and we have a great conversation for 90 minutes, I'm good with that. I mean, the Charlemagne podcast, um, I think is a little over an hour, um, maybe like an hour 10. Um, and that was entirely based off the fact that, you know, he's very compelling. Um, we had a great conversation, good back and forth. And, and so of course that's, that is what it is. I think the tone bell one actually went longer and we edited it down, but he was very uh, compelling. So I, I just want to do it for what it's worth and um, for how long, I, I guess in my mind, I perceive, you know, people will, will listen to it. So I, I'm with you. Like, I don't think there's ever a perfect answer for that. I just think you have to do it uh, to where you feel like people will pay attention because um, some people will tell you that you should think of it in terms of what people's daily commutes are, you know. So that's why some preach that that 45-minute uh, range is, is the hot spot because, you know, people are thinking like, okay, if you have a 20-minute drive to work, you listen to it on the way to work, you finish it on the way home. Or if you're catching a train or if you're in L.A. and in your car for nine hours, um, this will be something, um, you know, that should entertain you the whole way. So. I guess, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of keeping that in mind, but also keeping in mind that the fact that if it's good, people will stay with it as long as they need to. All right. So the first podcast debuted yesterday. They we're taping this on a Tuesday. It debuted Monday, April 15th. Yeah, that is correct. On tax day. <laughs> okay. Tax day. Nice. Any feedback yet from either listeners or elsewhere? Well, the feedback so far and uh, is that you know, people enjoy it. I mean, I know that uh, Cole and Mike were relatively new faces for some people, but I think, you know, people like their commentary. Um, as you might imagine, I, I know a great many producers uh, in this business. And so uh, certainly some of my friends, I reached out to them and asked them to give it a listen and to give me some feedback. And they had some really good notes for me, uh, you know, because it's new for me in terms of hosting a podcast and um, having, you know, two other co-hosts. So our chemistry, I think, will only get better as we go forward. Uh, it certainly will help when we're once all together in the same city. We take the initial podcast. We were all in three different cities. Uh, so that comes with it, it, its own challenges. But with that in mind, uh, I still thought we were, you know, pretty sharp and pretty crisp. And uh, I thought it was a, a solid debut. I'm biased, but I, that was, <laughs> you know, kind of where I was with it. But, yeah, so far, I mean, the feedback uh, has been really good. I know some people... <laughs> Uh, I guess who, you know, are so used to me on ESPN or reading me, they probably are thinking to themselves, I had no idea she cursed that much, but unfortunately I do. It's a, it's, it's a habit that I am very proud of. So, yeah, I, um, so yeah, it is, uh, I, I think people are going to get sort of a different sense of, of who I am. Yeah, I, I love cursing, and I, I have no problem sort of saying that. I, people sometimes get very upset about that on Twitter, but, you know, it just sometimes it just feels good. It's like a release. It, it is, and sometimes even though words are sort of our business, there is no better word to punctuate the moment or to describe what it is you're feeling or doing than a curse word. And oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, un, 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 <laughs> unquestionably. All right, let's finish up on a couple of sort of uh, um, things I wanted to ask you, sort of sports media related. Um what was your reaction to Adnan Verk being fired? Uh, like a lot of people, I was really shocked. I mean, um, you know, Adnan is, I think, one of the best in the business, for sure. Um, and all my interactions with him have been all always positive. So 
I was just uh, really surprised that it came to that. And uh, I waited a bit because when those situations occur, you never know. Um, I don't want to be the person looking like I'm looking at the car accident. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, I waited a, a, a bit to, to send him a note and just to let him know that, you know, I always respected him and um, adored his work, which he knew. And he was very supportive as I was going through, uh, you know, sort of different things in my life as well. And so uh, I just wanted him to know that, you know, um, I, I supported him. And um, as someone who has been in that firestorm before, and albeit for, for different reasons, that when he looked back on this, in hindsight, things will look so much differently than they do in the moment. So I wish him the best, and I know he's going to be the great, great for the zone. That was an awesome pickup for them. Um, and I have no doubt that, you know, uh, that he has not lost, I don't think, any respect in this business whatsoever. But I was, I was just stunned by, by all of that. I don't have any inside information, but I was just really surprised that it came to that. I understand you're only going to be able to go so far just given your loyalty and, and friendship and closeness, but there, there are a lot of people out there who are, I think, rightfully surprised not to see Michael Smith in a more prominent role at ESPN. We are seeing him on some of the Eric Rideholm shows. That's like part of the interruption around the horn, uh, highly questionable, but it, it, he, he's, he's not, it, again, this is my words, not yours. They're not using someone who's a pretty talented person in any large capacity. Is there any insight that you can share understanding that this is someone who's very, very close to you given your long years of friendship and the fact that you work together? Well, um, what I would say is that uh, definitely agree on the talented part. I mean, I've said it numerous times before. I mean, Mike is is the most uh, brilliant broadcaster I've ever worked with. And, um, you know, obviously I'm biased. I mean, we have a friendship that now nearly spans 20 years. um, And I think the world of him. And I think what people are saying is is temporary. Not temporary is in his time at ESPN. I have zero insight into that. But um, I think Mike is just, probably doing some self-assessing just to figure out like, what is that thing that he does next? And um, I think what people have to understand is the curveball these last two years have been for him. And I, I realized that a lot of the spotlight has shifted in my direction because of, you know, all the noise and the drama and everything, but, you know, understand the other half of that is that as part of like, when people ask me about, you know, regrets and all that kind of thing with, with the situation. I don't regret anything I said, but the hardest part of this is knowing that, um, and this is not me trying to make myself more important than, than I deserve to be, but the fact of the matter is that everything that happened to me affected him too. And yeah. people have to understand that, um, you know, he came into work thinking this was going to be like one thing, and then it became another. And so it, it was, it unwittingly um, kind of set his career in a, in a different direction. That was obviously not my goal or my intent, uh, but it's nevertheless, what is the collateral sort of damage of it? And so to come into, uh, you know, a contract or a situation where you think you're going to be doing sports center for the next four years, um, or multiple years. And then for that to all of a sudden not be a reality, 
you have to recalibrate and that takes time to do that. So I have no doubt that, you know, Mike is going to figure something out that he wants to do. And, you know, people also have to understand that um, they have to look at his career in his totality and look at all the things he's already done at ESPN. And it's a lot. It's a long list. So to find something that he hasn't done before is hard because he was on the NFL circuit forever. And I know from a personal standpoint, I know people say, oh, you should just go back to the NFL. Well, I mean, that's not easy to do at ESPN because it's not a lot of real estate for the NFL, uh, number one, because, you know, they got 7,000 people already doing it. Uh, and the second thing is, um, you know, for him to go back and say, be a reporter and be out on the grind again, he's got three children and a wife. Like, going back to that life, I- I'm sure it would be in many ways unrealistic given what his personal situation is. Right. Uh, he's always had a, a great deal of respect for Eric Rideholm. Um, in many ways, Mike credits him with sort of, you know, um, launching his television career. So people should not be surprised at the shows that Mike is on primarily are with Rideholm because he's such a pleasure and a joy uh, to work with. And he just makes you better every single time you do something for him. But, um, you know, this is, this is life at ESPN in, in many regards. It's, it's hard to find real estate there and even harder to find something that uniquely fits you. And uh, we were able to do that. And so to, to try to find that again, it's just going to take some time. Um, but I think um, people, if they think uh, if they're writing him off or uh, thinking that, you know, he's lost his fastball, they are greatly underestimating, um, you know, just how good he is. All right, two more, Jamel. And um, I asked this uh, soberingly, but I, I think it would be important for people to hear just sort of to understand what can sometimes happen. You've been pretty honest, uh, certainly on social media, about getting death threats. And I don't know how often that happens. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of cranks out there who throw that stuff off. But it's still regardless, uh, uh, if we're going to sort of curse here, a little bit of a mind fuck. And I wonder... Just how how have you dealt with that? Have you had to sort of call in security? Um, do you do you look at it as just as just a lot of anonymous anonymous people online doing stuff? But that's something um, most of us in the sports media field have never ever experienced, and I know that is something that you have experienced a lot of, particularly uh, particularly following the the comments about uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, um, it, it sometimes is that I don't know if I'm being stupidly naive or if, um, giving it, I guess I just don't know where, where to fall with it because, you know, a lot of these threats are, are happening online. And of course some have been mailed. Uh, and this was more when I was at ESPN, uh, now because I'm, you know, I move around and there is uh, at least I, I may have a, a, a mailbox at the Atlantic. I have no idea if I do or not. Um, given that I've only, you know, been to the Atlantic offices in, in DC a handful of times. So I don't know if there's a stack of mail there that I just haven't seen yet, but, um, in my post ESPN life, like I, I'm not getting the snail mail. And, uh, so at ESPN, you know, I, I got some of your snail mail and, and online, and now they're almost all exclusively online. because That's, I guess what people, uh, feel like they can, you know, reach me. Um, I don't know if I'm making a mistake by not taking them very seriously. 
I probably should take them more seriously. I'm sure my fiance and my family would tell me to take them more seriously, but I guess I just kind of have it. Um, a lot of it too is that um, I'm very careful about sort of my um, interaction on a sort of direct message level. Like a lot of my direct messages, I don't even check uh, just because I just expect there to be foolishness in there that I don't really want to deal with. Occasionally it's, it's not, and I'm, I'm really surprised, but um, I, I'll give you an example. Um, I checked my Facebook messages for the first time in months, like a couple weeks ago. And there were, I probably had a good 10 to 15 death threats. I had no idea they were even in there. And Jeez. so I was like, oh, oh, people were actually writing this. Like, I, I had no idea, but I hadn't checked. So, and I was like, see, this is why I only check these things every, you know, four to six months or whatever. Um, you know, on, on some level, I, 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 it's it's bothersome because the disadvantages people know what I look like. I don't know what they look like. Um, but uh, I guess I don't want it to be something that overcomplicates and rules my life. I don't want to have to go through the extra layer of, okay, I'm going public place, public place X. You know, should I have some security? I mean, despite the fact that um, you know, people know who I am. I don't feel the need to move around with a security team. I mean, to me, that would be a sad day if I had to. Um, and I wouldn't want my life to change that way. So I guess I'm caught between this weird vortex of being naive and stubborn about it. It's like I'm just insistent on living my life in a regular way. And that's probably, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's stupid or smart, uh, you know, um, again, my, the people that are close to me would probably say something much, you know, differently than I would. Um, and even, uh, it was funny, a friend of mine asked me, uh, recently if I was going to have security at my wedding and I never even thought about it, like really security at a wedding. <laughs> it just seems so over the top to me, but maybe I should. So I don't know. I mean, I guess, um, I just wanted to, to, I want my life despite the, celebrity nature of some parts of it. I want it to be normal and I'm going to fight for normal. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that these online threats are just people who have a little sense and a keyboard in front of them. And that's where we leave it. Uh, I've never personally, um, you know, felt my safety was compromised. I've never had somebody say something to me in public, uh, that I felt was, um, you know, inappropriate or had me on guard, but yet, um, I guess I should, you know, realistically prepare for that moment that that probably may happen, uh, especially if I feel like these threats are intensifying. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I, look, we, we all know that when it comes to this president that we have, he has been able to, as we see now, um, uh, you know, he's been able to, um, you know, put the rallying call on people in a way that is destructive and, and harmful. And, um, uh, you know, I've been, uh, you know, kind of on the receiving end of that. So I very much understand, um, what representative, uh, Omar is going through. It's like, I, I know what that's like. It's like when, when that dude bangs the drum, it, it really does, uh, bring a much different element into your life. And so, again, um, I'm fighting to, for a normal life, and I'm going to keep fighting for that. And I won't let these band of morons that insist on sending me death threats, I'm not going to let them 
change my sanctuary. I appreciate you answering that. Thank you. Um, last one for me is, you know, I'm sure you saw this online. There's so much talk about Tiger Woods winning, not just winning, but sort of what it meant. And, uh, you know, these questions about, you know, what if I don't like Tiger personally? Am I still allowed to sort of enjoy the um, the accomplishment? It's interesting. There's a lot of interesting, you know, sometimes, um, yeah, you have to sort of allow human beings, I think, to like understand that like, you know, sometimes people you don't like, like do stuff that's interesting and, and great uh, and vice versa. So I wonder, um, I wonder how you just processed that, how you processed Woods winning. It's obviously a massive sports story. Um, you know, we can spend hours on whether it's the greatest sort of American sports comeback story. That's a very subjective thing. But how did you process it just as somebody who's obviously worked in sports for a long time? And but for both of us, because we're around the same age, basically Tiger Woods has been one of the most important athletes in our lifetime. And probably for some people, the most important athlete. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I think it's an immaculate, incredible sports story, uh, for sure. And, um, you know, as like you, as somebody who, who was, who was old enough to have lived through his greatness, uh, it, it, I would have never imagined when he was ripping off Tiger Slams and, uh, appeared to be completely unbeatable that he would ever go this long in, at any stage in his career without, you know, winning a major tournament. And I was among the many people, uh, I think who felt, um, I don't know. Sad is probably being way dramatic, but it just felt a little incomplete to see him go that long without winning some of the injury struggles he went through. My mother had a very similar back surgery that he did, and uh, it took her years to recover. And that was part of the reason why it was really the injuries. Why I said before that, um, in addition to him expressing these uh, self doubt, um, why I said he should retire because. Physically, he was not well. And that's, you know, people don't understand uh, what a back surgery does to you. And uh, having seen it close up, again, with my own mother, I very much understood the level of pain, um, self-doubt that he was going through. And so to see it go from that, you know, to him, not just winning a tournament, but winning the Masters, uh, it was just stunning and, and incredible. That being said, Tiger Woods has always been problematic for me and not necessarily because of uh, what kind of husband he was or wasn't. I mean, if we started criticizing or canceling athletes based off their ability to stay faithful, we wouldn't really like anybody. That would like everybody would be canceled because, you know, this just in the people who, you know, might want to idolize or put athletes on a pedestal. I've known very few athletes that I've either covered or even had personal relationships with that have been able to be faithful husbands. Very few. So um, <laughs> that for me was never a bar uh, to, um, you know, to, to where, you know, Tiger had to exceed that or I was holding him to some kind of superhuman, um, you know, sort of standard. Uh, you know, the, the question for me has always with him been um, – well, one, I mean, to be perfectly honest, yeah, I am bothered by his friendship and relationship with Donald Trump, as I am with most people, you know, and especially because he is a person of color and I just don't get it. And I, I, I hey, that's it for his friendship to have. But I would say the same of Tom Brady. It's like, yeah, I'm bothered by the fact 
that you could be friends with somebody who is represents that and you could actually call them a friend. So, all right, cool. Do you? I, he's not my friend. He's yours. But it's nevertheless something that doesn't sit well with me. And um, it's never really sat well with me. Uh, Tiger's sort of um, willful distance from being a man of color um, and especially being identified as a black man. That's always been uh, kind of bothersome to me. It's not something that I would say uh, makes me denigrate his athletic achievements at all. I mean, I think those are in two separate categories, but just on a personal level, while I think he's at times sort of embraced it, I think at times he's gone out of his way to distance himself from it. And that's not to say that I'm counting on Tiger Woods standing for, um, you know, certain issues or political beliefs. I don't need Tiger to do that. But I do think it's important that as a man of color in his position, that he willingly embraced that because other people of color are looking at him um, and are holding him up as um, and proud of his achievements. I mean, as was easy to see on social media, there were numerous, you know, black people, people of color who are rooting him on all the time. And I think if most of us, um, and not that all black people think the same way, but I think most you know, black people you talk to will totally admit that, you know, they have always felt like he has distanced himself from our community, always. So for me, that was always the the problematic part with anything Tiger Woods did. I'm happy to celebrate and, and give him all the props in the world for being one of the most dominant athletes we've ever seen and, and, and what he's done in terms of breaking barriers in that sport. Uh, in that sport, rather, has been um, incredible. But at the same time, I don't see anything wrong with, um, you know, expressing a little bit of disappointment, if not um, ambivalence in, you know, uh, whenever he wins, because I, you know, I I do feel like, um, you know, his, uh, uh, his identity has, has always been something that he's been a little reluctant about. It just feels that way. And and people, look, people can debate me or challenge me on it, but it just, that's always the sense I've gotten. I appreciate that perspective, Jamel. Uh, Jamel Hill is um, a staff writer for The Atlantic and, as you know, a former or a longtime ESPN anchor. Her new podcast is Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It is for Spotify. Uh, Cadence 13 produces that. The first podcast went up on Monday, April 15th, and that is Charlemagne the God. Did I, I don't know if I asked you this. Was there a second guest? I have not listened oh, no. to it yet. I will, but there is there was, a there, second guest? There was no guest on the first part. The first part was just me and the co-host oh. um, sort of uh, getting acclimated with one another and introducing ourselves uh, to our, our listeners and, um, again, discussing a myriad of issues. Thursday's podcast. Thursday. We'll oh, so it's twice. It's twi- it comes out twice a week, Monday and Thursday. It com- yep, it comes out twice a week. What a, um, what an absolutely shitty job of research by me, Jamal. <laughs> I apologize, one hundred percent here. Okay, so Thursday uh, and it. Monday and Thursday it comes out. So Charlemagne is uh, the first. The first one is basically you're introducing you and your co-host to the to the to the podcast listeners, and then Thursday is the first sort of one-on-one with a guest. 
what they get. It will not be Charlemagne. I, I think uh, the Charlemagne pod, I think that one is going to likely air next week. Um, but the first guest will be someone of note. That's all I can Ooh. say. <laughs> all right. I love, all right. I don't feel as bad as my research now, given that nobody knows who the first guest is. Um, all right. Well, check out. Listen, I, I've known Jamel for a long time. I, I have. Uh, I have a great respect for her. I like her very much. Uh, for all of those who have just unfollowed me, uh, you know, live long and prosper. Um, she. Um, uh, she's always been an honest broker in her certainly her dealings with me at ESPN and just in life in general. Um, I, I, I really have great respect for her and I always enjoy talking to you, Jamel. So check out her podcast. Jamel Hill is unbothered for Spotify. Jamel, you're going to be on a lot bigger podcast and going to get you far more downloads than this one, but uh, at least, <laughs> at, at least I get you some sports media ones, I think, if nothing else. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm happy to bring the, um, um, you know, the sports media crowd, uh, <laughs> to this podcast. Okay. Occasionally we, you know, we touch on, yeah, on issues the sports media crowd would be, would be interested in. <laughs> it all counts. It, 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 it all counts and continued success. I think, you know, you've done podcasting before. Um, so you're going to, you, you know, you know about the format, you're going to enjoy it just because of the freedom and, and it's just cool. You know, one thing I, I wish I had is I wish I had a co-host sometimes where I could just shoot the shit with a co-host. And uh, I think that's great that you ha- you have two people who you're just going to be able to, you know, go back and forth with. That's sort of what makes this uh, format a lot of fun. So I have no doubt that the podcast will be a success and that you will enjoy it. And uh, thanks, as always, for coming on the Sports Media Podcast. And, uh, and I'm sure our paths will cross again. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Rich. Rick Riley is a name that people who listen to this podcast really do not need an introduction for, but I will give him one anyway. He is the author of Commander in Cheat, How Golf Explains Trump, and of course, a longtime writer and on-air personality for both Sports Illustrated and ESPN, my colleague for many, many years at SI. And Rick Riley joins me on the Sports Media Podcast. Rick, I think you're in California, so good morning. Yo, you make me sound so old, like I voted for Lincoln or something. I mean, I mean, I guess I am pretty old, but geez. <laughs> Rick, I saw you campaigning for Polk, and I, that's, that's the first time I just, I thought something special about this guy. Right. Hey, can we just James have Polk. one moment of silence for how tough it must be right now at Sports Illustrated? Well, you know, the thing with SI, and obviously it's a brand very near and dear to both of us, so much of their future will depend on who buys them. Yeah. And if they get bought by a patron... Uh, you know, I sound like Jim Nance. If they get bought by a patron who, um, you know, has a lot of money and wants to invest in sports journalism, their future can be really, really good. You know, if you get a Bezos type, um, that you, you know, it could be a miracle. The reverse, of course, is, you know, goes to some hedge fund or something like that, and they just sort of strip mine it until, you know, it's not worth anything. So to me, so much of it has to do with who's going to buy those guys. Yeah, I uh, wish them luck. Well, let's start with this book. And I'll just ask the overall question. I'm sure you've gotten this many times in the book tour. And is why did, why did you decide to write a book on Donald Trump's relation to the truth when it comes to golf? I didn't want to. I was retired. I was loving life. I was meditating. I was, uh, we were living in Italy, you know, three months a year. We were, I was playing golf. I'm learning piano, Italian. I was just reading all those books, you know, that you pretend you've read, but you never really have read. And I, I, I was happy. And then I was sitting in Italy and uh, I kept seeing things on my phone about him telling people 
oh, I'm the, I'm a, you should vote for me. I'm a, I'm a golf champion. I'm a winner. I've won 18 golf club championships and that's against the best players. And that's not, that's without any strokes. And I'm like, you liar. Cause you already told me how you did it, which is to play the first round by yourself. When you open a new course, you know, he's got 15 courses and then call that the club championships. And I'm like, so I started looking into it. And did he have any club championships at courses that he didn't own? No. Were most, were a lot of these club championships the first one? Yes. And then I, and then, then I, then I looked up his handicap because I'd played with him and he was about a 10, maybe nine or 10. He's a pretty good player. And his handicap on gym.com, where you can look up anybody's handicap, was 2.8. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's no way. But then I noticed, you know, to get a handicap, you've got to turn in 20, your most 20 recent scores. And they take half of those and they figure it out. Anyway, his 20 scores have taken him eight years to post. So he's just cherry picking the best scores. Then I looked at the slope, which is the difficulty of the course. And they're all over 140. There's maybe, maybe 10 courses in America are over 140, and nobody plays the back tees there. And all his courses were over 140. So I said, you know, this guy is lying to people about what a great club champ he is, golfer. Because I remember playing with him at Pebble Beach Pro-Am and seeing him there. And I noticed he hardly ever made the cut. And so I looked that up. He'd never made a cut in seven tries. Then I looked at the, I played with him once at the Lake Tahoe thing. He'd never even finished in the top half there. Of course, one year he may, might have been tired. He slept with a porn star and a playmate. But so I'm saying, I was like, there's, a, there's a, something to say here. So I thought, well, should it be an article? Should it be? And then it just kept getting bigger and more. Everybody had a story about this guy, except about, about only a third of them would let me use it. Like, Republicans, Democrats, red, blue, left, right. Everybody had a cheating story about Trump, but a lot of people were chicken. You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me use it. Oh, I don't want to be audited and all this. But there were so many. I said, this is a book. Rick, how did you report this out? Um, that's sort of the interesting thing to me. Once you start, as you said, you start getting more of these stories. Do you just, I mean, do you call... The thing about Trump is obviously just given his fame and now obviously given the fact that he's president, he's probably played with pretty much everybody. I mean, I've seen him with Tiger Woods. I've seen him with the most famous golfers of all time. He's played with celebrities for sure. He's played with politicians. He's played with financiers. So, I mean, do you just cold call these people? What's what's the process of reporting this book out? Well, I started with people in L.A. that I knew that had played with him, and they all had incredible stories. Like one guy, a friend of mine played with him at Trump LA, which by the way, he calls better by far than Pebble Beach, which is, I think, number five in the world right now. <laughs> Trump LA is this plate of sausages that hangs on the cliff, but is a terrible course and not even in the top 50 in California. But anyway, he said, um, at the end of the day, he'd lost, Trump said, you owe me $27. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and my buddy goes, are you kidding? You kicked or foozled or cheated the ball on every hole. I'm not paying you a dime. And he, did, he feels no shame. And Trump goes, oh, I got a hot girlfriend and a white Bentley. I don't care. And he just left. And so there's something about him that has to win. It has to make sure you know 
he be you? Because it's never about the money. A lot of times he doesn't even take the money. So everybody had a story like that. And um, so I, I just started calling calling places he'd played, guys I knew at Wingfoot. Then I started going to his courses. And uh, like Bedminster, I, I played it. I snuck into the caddy shack, got a bunch of stuff there. And then, then I noticed suddenly when I'd call a Trump place, I wasn't being allowed on. And then I figured, okay, he's on to me. So then I had to go as a guest. And then I started going to the courses that are open to the public, like uh, Trump Ferry, uh, Ferry Links, I think it's called, in the Bronx, Turnberry in Scotland, Aberdeen in Scotland, places like that. What for you was the most uh... – I mean, listen, you have a lot of them in the book, obviously, but is there, is there, is there a most memorable or a cheating story that stands out above the rest? And if so, why? <laughs> well, I just, if, if people could just get to know this guy, they'd see it's just, it, he never, he doesn't feel shame. He just, he just does it. He has to win. I was talking to a psychiatrist and he said, you know, we, we see that he, ch- he ticks every box for personality disorder, narcissism. And so, I, like someone else asked me that, what's the best story? He's six years old. He gets a bunch of building blocks for Christmas. His brother, Robert, I think is one year younger. He, but Robert gets a bunch of building blocks. So uh, he says, Robert, can I borrow your blocks? I want to build a skyscraper, right? And so here's your block. Okay, sure. So he builds this big skyscraper and uh, everybody admires it and then the next day, Robert says, okay, I want my blocks back. I want to build something. And he couldn't because Trump had glued them all together. So at the, it's, it's starting at a very young age. He, now, he's, he has played with uh, – the thing and just sort of skimming through, skimming through your book, he's played with a lot of athletes. I mean I know you have Doc Rivers' uh, story in there. Um, obviously, he's played with a ton of professional golfers. Did you, you know, you're someone who's obviously written and covered athletes for many, many years. The athletes that you've talked to, either uh, former or current, um, were they kind of just like, you know, because most of these guys obviously live by, if nothing else, by a code of fairness or or a code of competition. Were they just blown away by the fact that this guy was always trying to cheat with them as well? Well, right. Well, getting back to the the celebrities and and pros, he loves pro athletes. He really does know the golf tour really well even though he drove them so crazy at, at the Doral tournament when he bought Trump Doral that Cadillac pulled out. Nobody wanted any part of him. So they wouldn't, couldn't get a sponsor. So the Doral jumped to Mexico and Rory McIlroy said, looks like our tournament jumped the wall. So what he does though, when he's down at Mar-a-Lago, he calls over to uh, Trump Jupiter and the pro there uh, says, Oh yeah, he calls all the time over here. He wants to know what we're doing with the greens How's business, which, you know, he's supposed to, he said at a press conference, he'd recuse himself from all the golf business, but he clearly doesn't. He's absolutely into golf. So he calls and he'll say, uh, Hey, who's hanging around? Cause he loves celebrities and celebrities, especially athletes are probably pretty good golfers. And so the pro will go, well, we got Michael Ruzioni and, uh, Brad Faxon. All right, send them over tomorrow. See if they want to play. And they'll go, uh, Mark Kalkovecchia, whoever it is. And, and there's, they, they, Faxon described it this way. He said, cause, cause Tiger tried to cheat or did cheat, uh, against Tiger Woods and Dustin Johnson playing with Faxon. And so I said, what did you do when you caught him cheating? 
And he said, look, we didn't say anything because we've heard so many stories. We kind of wanted our own story. <laughs> One of the things that like is, I think, interesting to me as someone who writes about the media and follows the media is that you know, you're inevitably going to get a ton of people who I think are interested in the book because they dislike Trump. There's obviously a group of people who like Trump and will criticize you for writing a book and saying that you're just trying to capitalize on Trump's name and fame. Did any did, did this does any of this calculus factor in as you're writing the book? Meaning does the publishing house say, listen, Rick, anything about the president right now is going to sell? Or reverse wise, you say, hey Rick, you know, um, you're gonna get killed for writing this book because there's just gonna be people who say that you're just a media person piling piling on. I'm wondering if that if any of that sort of factored into um factored into your world as you were writing, reporting this. You know, <laughs> I have seen so much. I've been ripped by everybody on left, right, Republican, Democrat, hate me, love me, whatever. It's, I, I tell you, Richard, I, it just doesn't bother me anymore. You know, I, I, Mark, Mark Cuban told me something a long time ago because I was whining or something about somebody said something on my Twitter mentions. He goes, why do you even look? And I said, what do you mean? He said, why do you even look? Do you leave your front door open so people can come in and hit you with a baseball bat? He said, just be yourself. Don't worry about it. And, you know, Dan Jenkins just died. He always said kind of the same thing. He said, he was always so irreverent. He said, screw the editors. Uh, screw everybody. Do write the truth. Write good, true sentences. And this, this just, it really, like the, the book is dedicated to the truth. It's still a thing. And I just couldn't believe in my country that, we, that, that the truth was just getting like stomped on, just getting crushed. And I'm like, I, I don't know about politics enough to be an authority, but I know about golf. And the truth was just getting flattened like a tortilla here. So, no, I didn't care what the blowback was going to be, but I knew it was going to be severe. I mean, you know, really severe. Like, am I going to get audited? Uh, are people going to come to my house? I mean, this is the, both sides are so inflamed right now. It could go south, but, um, I don't know. I think, I think if, 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 if you feel strongly about something, you got to rise up and talk about it. One of the things that I know you've been asked, uh, for this book, and I think it's actually a really interesting question. And it goes to something like, why does it matter? Why does it matter uh, how Donald Trump plays or why does it matter if Donald Trump cheats or for that matter, if any president does this? And actually, I read the book. You gave a pretty good answer. So I'll I'll ask it for this podcast as well. Why why does this all matter in your opinion? Well, here's an answer that's not in the book. But, you know, I I knew Arnold Palmer and he he, – one time we were playing – and, he, and a guy joined us that he was going to maybe do a deal with. He hadn't decided. And I said, oh, what's the deal with having this guy play? And he goes, oh, I never do a business deal until I've played 18 holes with the guy. And I said, why? And he said, because in four hours, you can't hide who you are. He said, if you're going to cheat me out here, I think I know you're going to cheat me in the deal. If you're going to have a bad temper out here, then you're going to be a blow your, blow your mind in the, in the, uh, in the meetings. He said, on the other hand, if you're play by the rules and you're polite and, and you're fun, then you're going to be fun to be in business with. And I remember the guy wasn't that fun and he didn't do the deal, but 
I don't think Arnold Palmer, if he were alive, would be in business with Donald Trump because you can say, I mean, I guess I see that, uh, yeah, golf is not the most important thing in the world, but it is kind of a window into the soul. I have a line in there that golf is like bicycle shorts. It reveals a lot about a guy. And what it reveals about Trump is that he has to win no matter how bold and fat the lie is. I mean, some of these lies are worse than Bill Clinton's, I did not have sex with that woman. I mean, they're just flat out ridiculous. And you're like, like for instance, uh, he says, climate change is a hoax invented by the Chinese. But right now in Doonbeg, Ireland, his lawyers are petitioning the city to build a 2000 foot wall that's gonna be 10 feet high along the sea to keep the sea, the sea off his fairways. And it says in the petition, uh, because of climate change and rising sea levels, Mr. Trump has the right to protect his property. Well, so that matters. Um, you know, he turned his back on Puerto Rico after the hurricane. I felt it was shameful. I mean, I have relatives in Puerto Rico, it really gets to me. And, and I'm not saying this is linked, but years before he was president, he got into a bad deal in Puerto Rico on a golf course where he was supposed to go down there and run it and make it better and bring his celebrity friends. And he was going to play it all the time and it was going to save the course. And he convinced them to take a $32 million loan out from the Puerto Rican government to try to make this happen in, in order to pay him and to improve the course. And it didn't work. And he just picked up stakes and left. He and his, he and his Trump organization just left. And so I'm not saying the two instances are linked, but I am saying twice he turned his back on Puerto Rico. So this is your leader, you know, okay, right or left, say what you want, but this is a guy that, that ha doesn't have an ethical standard for the truth. And it's, I think, I think golf proves that. That's uh, well said. Uh, and I appreciate that. Uh, I want to, um, in our remaining time, I want to ask you a couple questions that sort of go around some different places. First off, Tiger Woods. We're taping this on Tuesday, two days after Tiger won oh, the Masters. I'm you, so glad you, you asked. Are one, can, I, can I interrupt? Yeah, you're questions? one. I, listen, you're so much. So much of your career in writing is linked, obviously, to golf, and you know whether it's Nicholas or Tiger. You were, uh, I think, you wrote the cover story for Sports Illustrated when he won his first Masters. So I'd be just, I, I, it's, I'm just going to sort of leave it an open-ended question where you, I have to think that you never imagined that yesterday could have occurred. Oh, yes, I absolutely did. He, he almost won the last two majors. I was at Carnoustie. Well, had the lead talking about from like four years ago, not, not in recent time, but I mean, you know, when Tiger had sort of was at his lowest and thinking that that's it, he's done. Could you have imagined, maybe you could have, could you have imagined a Sunday like we saw? Absolutely. I had, um, I have 10 $50 bets with 10 of my buddies who said after the leg injury in 08, after Tory Pines, that he'd never catch Jack. And I mean, they don't know Tiger. This guy is unkillable. He's King Kong. He's, he's, he would never, ever quit. And I'm like, I'll bet you. And I have not paid those bets off because even though he, two years ago, he could hardly get out of a cart. The guy is, Unstoppable. I've never seen a golfer work out as hard as he does. He's, for instance, his 9:20 tee time on Sunday. He got up at 3:45. We they asked Brooks Kepka what time he was going to get up. About 
I mean, he got up at 345. That's how much time it takes just to get his body ready to play. So, yes, I could have imagined it. Um, and now let me just say this. The golf he played, it, it, it in no way goes down as one of the most incredible runs. It's not Nicholas in 86 with the Eagles. and the, I mean, he just lagged. He hit for the fat part of the green. It, it was like a bunch of guys swimming in a riptide and everybody drowned but him. He played the smart, safe, genius golf. And so there's not going to be any incredible highlights, except maybe Michael Phelps watching that shot on 16. But the emotion, the emotion he showed. I mean, I've been covering that guy since he was a freshman in college. He's, I've always thought Tiger was too famous, too young. And he, he would just never, he would never give us what he was really, even in his quotes, his expressions, his movements, he would never show us what he was really feeling. Even the shame after the sex scandal, he didn't really show how much that hurt him. That emotion was the first time I've ever seen him just, just let it all go. I mean, it just, it was amazing. He just went crazy. I stood there when he uh, hugged his father in 97. I was standing right there. And to, to have that, to have that come back full circle 20 years later, him hugging that his son was like even more emotional than his dad hugging him. And it was almost like Earl was there. I mean, it just gives me chills just talking about it. So all credit to him. He never quit. You know, Michael Jordan quit. He either quit or had to quit. People quit. Uh, John Elway, when his body was given out, he quit. Tiger, I realize it's not the same sport, but he never quit through the shame, through the horrible difficulties, the surgeries. He never quit. He could have. He had 500 million bucks. Could have quit. And he didn't. So I thought it was when, when Jim Nance is tearing up in an interview, and I've known him forever. Have you, have you ever seen Jim Nance tear up? That's how big the moment was. Rick, you've, um, you've been pretty clear that, um, you know, the, the sort of the grind of being on the road in sports has, is no longer appealing to you. And I totally can understand that. Was there any part of you, though, that wished you were at Augusta on Sunday just so you could have written that? Yes. Yeah. When he, when he went crazy with the emotion, I'm like the parallels here. Oh my God. And just the idea that a man had, who had made so many mistakes in his life, won one, won a master's with, by making no mistakes, by taking no chances. I mean, this is a guy that slept with pancake waitresses when he was married to one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. And this is a guy that, you know, was busted twice for pills that he wasn't prescribed. The guy that got woken up twice by cops in cars, he made tons of mistakes, life filled with pain. And this time he wanted being safe. And the idea that his kids were there and his, his mother and Earl wasn't, but the circle was complete. I mean, I could, he wouldn't, but it'd be a great place to go out, you know, but I'd like to say one more thing about Tiger uh, and Trump sure. and Trump in no way. Should Tiger Woods accept that medal of freedom from a guy like Trump, who has said three times now, golf should be an aspirational sport. It should be, uh, he says it should be for those who succeed in life and can afford golf. That's his words. 
It should be for those who can afford golf. And he even said, uh, you know, join a club, make a lot of money, join a club. And then it's kind of a reward. I'm like, screw you. That's not at all what golf is. 90% of golf is played on public courses. The average round is $35. Tiger Woods has the Tiger Woods Foundation, which helps disadvantaged kids, uh, A, study, B, learn the game of golf, because the game of golf is a fabulous game, and it teaches you how to deal with people, and we call our own fouls on each other, most of us do, uh, on ourselves, most of us do at least. So how can Tiger Woods, who has all these kids looking up to him, accept an award from a guy who, don't, who doesn't think they deserve golf? And so when you say to me, what has this got to do? What has his relationship to golf got to do with his presidency? Well, if the poor don't deserve golf, do they deserve good health care? Do they deserve a good education? Uh, you know, it's, it, it matters. It matters. And, and tell me, Tiger Woods will get the Medal of Freedom from the next guy or the next woman or whatever. But I think that is hypocritical to take this medal from a guy that he doesn't even respect himself. He went on Colbert and Colbert was telling him, asking him to go through uh, what it was like playing golf with all the presidents. And he said, oh, yeah, Bush 41 was this and Bush 43 was that and Clinton was this. And Colbert goes, well, you didn't mention Trump. And Tiger said on national television, you said presidents. So you're telling me, Tiger, oh, you got to respect the office when you when you went on Colbert and absolutely disrespected it. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what Tiger ends up uh, ends up doing in that oh, situation. Oh, he'll do it. He'll um, do it. He'll do it. Yeah, I, 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 Michael I would, Jordan I would, says I Republicans buy sneakers too. Yeah, I would bet he will take it. Um, all right, finally, there's something I've always wanted to ask you. Um, now that there's a little bit of perspective and in time in this, you left um, Sports Illustrated for ESPN for a big contract when ESPN was trying to blow SI out. Um, obviously, listen. You, they offer you that kind of money, you got to take it. I do wonder now that with the, uh, you know, sort of viewed now through time, uh, one, how do you look at your ESPN years? And two, um, when you look back, was that still the right decision uh, to make? Uh, obviously, given that they offered you a shitload of money at that time, and almost any of us would probably have jumped at that. <laughs> well, okay, how do I look back on ESPN? I made a ton of friends. I learned the TV business. Uh, I got to anchor Sports Center 10 times. I had an interview show that was really fun to do. Uh, nobody watched it, but it was called Homecoming. Um, I watched it. Yeah, <laughs> it was really fun and amazing. I cried sometimes interviewing people. Um, I got to understand, and a little late, uh, how the internet works for writers. Um, so, uh, but what you don't, what people don't get about me, I guess, Rich, is that I'm really restless. Like I wanted to retire at 40. I've always wanted to move to Europe. I wanted to uh, play the piano. I wanted to see if I could write movies. I wanted to see if I could write politics. The thing is, people in sports just can't believe you ever want to leave it. You said earlier that I, I burnt out on the road. I love the road. I was burnt out on sports. Rick Tellender, you remember him, used to say there's, there's only seven sports stories. Everything else is just, every thing after that is just a derivation of the seven. And the, the more I was into it, the more I did it, the more he was right. 
I loved writing that back page column, but it was hard. I mean, you had to be, you, you had to be different than you were last week. You had to do something that nobody else had done. You, you had to, you know, either make people cry, laugh, throw the magazine across the floor, whatever. And it was, it was hard. And it was always in that, as much as I tried to write about people who did sports more than sports themselves, I was really ready for something else. So ESPN came along with this, with this great deal and a whole new world to explore. And so, you know, I really, I really enjoyed it. I was not a hit on television, but I really enjoyed it. And, uh, and because of that deal, I was finally able to retire and try all this other stuff, which has really been fun. Are you um, still based part of the year in Italy or are you now full-time California resident? Well, I was supposed to be every fall in Italy, but then because of this book, I haven't been able to go lately, but we're definitely going this year. Yeah, head back. I mean, somehow Trump yeah, gets me in some sort of debtor's prison or something. I don't know what he's going to do to me, but yeah, it's too good. You got to go. Yeah. I mean, they, they, you know, I feel the Italian government, uh, they'll take care of you. you oh, yeah. Claim That's such a great or government. Or you or come or where I am, come to Toronto. They love Americans up here at the moment. You're in Toronto? I am in Toronto. Yeah. You see, do you see Michael Farber? I Michael Farber's in Montreal, but yes, I have uh, oh, I've had breakfast Montreal. with Michael. Farber. Michael Farber is a celebrity in sports circles here in Canada. So it's it's he's like the mayor. So it's fun to walk down the street with him and and, and have people wave in his presence. Everybody says Montreal is so cool right now, and you got to go there and eat some street with all these amazing restaurants. Yeah, Montreal is a great city. Yeah, Canada's cool. It's been it's been a really welcoming place for my family, and uh, uh, it's and Toronto's been a great place. I love Toronto. Um, yeah, yeah well, you're welcome here. We're well, happy to put you up. Uh, <laughs> and you can hang out with my 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 young twins. That's okay. Area. Nice. Um, you're you're welcome. Uh, Commander in Cheat: How Golf Explains Trump is the book by Rick Riley. Uh, I'm, I'm believe it's on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, or if not, it's, it will be. In it's uh, it's um, number six. Number six. Oh, there you go. It's number six, or as Trump would say, number one. <laughs> Way to sell it. Uh, and of course, uh, listen, go back uh, in the archives of Sports Illustrated's vault. Check out Rick Riley's work. Same with ESPN. Uh, you know, he sort of laid the groundwork prior to my generation in Sports Illustrated. We wouldn't basically have jobs without him and his generation. So I was always appreciative of that. And he was always very cool to me when we would hang out at the Olympics. It was nice to, uh, it was nice to ride Riley's star wave in uh, far-flung locales. <laughs> Rick, uh, I appreciate you doing this. I wish you nothing but the best of luck with the book and, uh, and your travels uh, elsewhere. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, buddy. You're good to have me. Thank you. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Jamel Hill. Check out her podcast. And Rick Riley, check out his book, um, Two People I've Known for a Long Time, one I worked with, and I really appreciate them coming on today. If you like these kind of conversations and this talk, and we'll get back to, uh, in, I think, next week, some kind of sports media roundtable just to sort of check in on all that stuff. But uh, Ron McLean of Hockey Night in Canada and Jason Benetti, the voice of the White Sox, they were the previous podcast. Before that, Renee Young, and Paul Heyman on life in the WWE, and how to do, uh, how to become a great communicator. Uh, Mr. Heyman given a, a PhD course on that. That was great. Then there was a uh, podcast episode that we did on podcasting. Conrad Thompson, Sharina Maud, Emily Kaplan, Greg Wyshynski, Stephen Bennett, 
uh, five podcasters at different stages of their podcasting life, how they do it, um, what kind of downloads they get, if they're making money on it. That was a really interesting episode. And then right before that, Michael K on Mike Francesa and NFL Network analyst Daniel Jeremiah. Again, head to Apple, uh, Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Radio.com, Sports Media with Richard Deitch. If you like this stuff, please leave us a review. That's, uh, that's how it stays on. All right. For my producer, Terrence Malagon, who's done a great job with this podcast for Cadence 13, this is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast. <laughs>